Jack Spierko with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Monday, December 17, 2012. This is episode 1042 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, it's Monday. And because it's Monday, we're going to take your feedback, your questions, your emails to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Again, your emails to jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com. Um, if you want to send me an email like that, the best way to do it is in the subject line, put email for Jack or put video for Jack or put comment for Jack or put question for Jack. You get the, the, the formula? Figure out the one word that's most appropriate to lead the sentence off and then follow it up with for Jack. If you do that, it'll go into a special folder in my Outlook file where it'll get screened for a show like this. I get hundreds of emails a day with no exaggeration like that. I can't cover them all, but it'll get in there for screening. And I personally screen these emails. I do read them all. I cannot respond to them all. I certainly can't answer them all on the air, but I do read them all. So, no, if you send an email like that, it will be read by me. And I do care about what you have to say, and I've taken the information in as best I can. The format, though, to get this done the best way possible, make your point up front. Give me your question. Give me your thought in one sentence or less, and then give me details if it's a question like that. If it's an article or a video or something, put a little phrase in there what it's about. Just don't send me just a you know, video for Jack and a link um, because, you know, uh, human nature being what it is, if I'm really busy – Uh, it may not pique my interest that it's just a video. Give me uh, one sentence and say, hey, this is why I said this to you. Uh, just trying to help you guys help me do the best job I can for you. Uh, that's why I give you kind of this disclaimer on our feedback shows, both the call and, and the email ones like today. Before we get to your emails, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor of the day, number one, Safe Castle Royal. You know, Safe Castle is a long-term survival podcast sponsor. Uh, they've been with us since the very, very beginning. And uh, they have done a lot to help grow the show. They've done a lot to support the members' support brigade. They have a discount buyers program. It's a great deal. It's $49 bucks one time, and you have the membership for the rest of your life. People buy it every day, but they give it away for free to our member support brigade members, which basically makes your first year of the MSB cost a dollar. So they have been a great supporter. They provide all the things you can need for your prepping. Check them out today uh, at prepared.pro. That's the easiest way to remember their site, prepared.pro. I don't know if you know that, but there is a .pro. Best way to get to them, though, come to the survivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the right-hand margin, and then you know you're dealing with the actual Survival Podcast sponsor. That's true for all of our sponsors. Next up today, Survival Gear Bags, Kelly John Doe, who's also behind the Survival Podcast new gear shop. We have great stuff there, so there's my blurb on the gear shop blended into the sponsor, and I'll, I'll leave it at that. But Survival Gear Bags has all the equipment you need to put together, uh, not just the bags, but the stuff to go in it to deal with situations like a bug-out bag, an active shooter bag, or any other situation that you need to gear up for. Check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. Longtime supporter of the community as well. Does a discount for the member support brigade, and has been doing that for over two years. 
So check them out today, survivalgearbags.com. Next, remember to check out TSP Copper. We have some really cool copper coins that help you spread the messages of independence, liberty, and self-sufficiency there. Remember, the prices are for a roll of 20 coins, not for an individual copper round. Again, it's a roll of 20. And one guy wrote me, I go, I can't believe one copper round is 30-something bucks. It's not. 20 of them are. They're like a buck 25 a piece or something like that. Uh, next up, uh, I want to remind you guys about the Member Support Brigade. If you want to and you join the Member Support Brigade, you'll help support the show at about 18.3 cents an episode. Uh, you'll get discounts like the ones I just talked about, plus discounts to over 30 other individual supporting vendors. Some are sponsors, some are not. Uh, you'll get video content that's available nowhere else. You'll get over $150 worth of free ebooks on day one. This is 50 bucks a year, folks. I do a real, I, I do a real good job, I think, of making sure there's a value there for a return on your investment. So it's not just, hey, donate money so that Jack can have a living here. It's, I have a valuable product. I, I just like to point that out once in a while, how much value really is there. Uh, military law enforcement, Peace Corps, and first responders like paramedics, you guys get, an even bigger uh, value because you get a discount. All you have to do is email me before you join, put service discount in the subject line, tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did. And uh, I'll tell you what, I will send you a discount code uh, that will make your savings even greater. And that's just a thank you for the service that you uh, perform or have performed. Just tell me who you are and what you did if you're past uh, service or who you are and what you're doing if you're pro uh, existing service. And, and I'll hook you up. With that, I do have the uh, housekeeping wrapped up. And I'm sure everybody knows where I'm going uh, with the first subject today. Today, sadly, the, the first thing I have to cover on the show is going to be the recent tragedy in Connecticut with the school shooting. Um, I, I don't really like to go into these subjects. Uh, they become electrically and politically charged. There's a lot of people who are hurt uh, by them. But I think this is important, and it's why I'm going to do it today. And I'm actually recording this part um, for a video for YouTube so that you guys can share it, because I think this is something that a lot of people need to hear, especially parents, because I'm going to do some things today that maybe will make some people angry or unhappy, but they need to be said, and they need to be heard, and they need to be understood. And, and I'm not going to go and start talking about gun rights and gun ownership, even though that's important to me. I won't stoop to the level that some politicians are salivating at already on the other side of that issue. I, I want to talk about keeping people alive. I want to talk to you about the truth And I want to talk to you about the lies that you've been told over the weekend. And they're not any kind of like out there lies. They're just lies that good-meaning, well-meaning people are telling because they don't know any better or they're trying to find some solace, something good in their heart. And the first thing is, there is no good. There is no good from this. Nothing good comes from this. This was the actions of a sick, twisted individual who act with, acted with pain and rage And you're not going to understand it, and we're not going to understand why. And sadly, we can do things to help save lives in the future, but we will not prevent things like this from occurring in the future. Things like this will happen again. Some of them maybe will get lucky and will stop and will prevent. Some of them people may take heroic actions and save lives in. That did not happen here. Everybody's wanting there to be heroes in this scenario. Um, let's start with the principal. The principal did a great thing by notifying people with the loudspeaker system that there was a, th a threat 
so that teachers can be responding to it however they were trained. We'll get to that in a minute because that's a big problem too. Uh, so that was great. They have made this principal out to be a hero because she ran down the hallway directly confronting the gunman and was murdered. I'm sorry, that was not heroic. That was a mistake. It did nothing to save a single life. It never had a chance to save a single life. The intention was heroic. The woman is honorable. She behaved in an incredibly brave way, but it was a huge error in judgment. If you are going to try to stop somebody from killing people who is armed with a gun, let alone multiple guns, and has already demonstrated, I'll kill people, I'll shoot people, because they're there to do just that, and you do so on a direct frontal approach from a distance, there is only one result that can and did occur. The person with the gun will shoot you and kill you, and you will not make a bit of difference. If we're not honest about that, then there's no potential for someone in the future to make a difference. So we need to be honest about that. That wasn't a heroic act. It was a heroic intent, and it failed. And I know that must really upset some people, especially people that love this woman. I'm sure she's a wonderful woman, and I honor her and I respect her. But it did not save a single life. It did nothing to change the outcome. It just resulted in one more person dying. Maybe there was a way that she could have disabled this person or slowed him down or prevented him from getting into another classroom. I don't know. I'm not there. I cannot judge that. But I know if you're in a hallway and you make a direct approach to someone with a gun and they mean to kill you, you will not get to them before they kill you. That's just not how it works. Life is not like the movies. The next thing, and this is every parent in America with school-aged children, Every grandparent who has children who have school-aged children, every person who will ever have a child and send them off to school needs to hear what I'm about to tell you right now. The other big lie that's come out of this, and it hurt, I, God, I, I mean, before I even say this, i got to tell you, man, just like all of you, this hurts. This, the, the fact that we could lose such young children to something like this hurts me. And it hurts every single person in America that has a rational mind that would never do such a horrible thing. But you got to push past the pain and you got to look at reality. What I was astonished by, shocked by, and, and angered by in this quest to find a hero was the constant restatement that the children that weren't shot at there were in other classrooms that the teachers kept them safe. I know this is going to be hard to hear, but they did not keep them safe. What they did was not heroic. They did what they were told to do, and it was a pretty dumb thing to do. And it's probably the plan, if you're a parent, that your school has if there's an active shooting in your school. The plan to keep them safe was to close the door and lock it. Not going to fault that. Shut off the lights, draw the shades if they're there, not going to fault it, and then put them up against the wall or into a corner and tell them to be quiet and wait for help to come. And over and over, we were told about teachers who did just that and grateful parents and grateful news people and other observers that said and kept them safe. They were not kept safe. They got lucky. This guy had enough ammo to kill everybody in that school. 
putting children up against the wall and telling them to be quiet doesn't keep them safe when a madman wants to kill them. If we look at atrocities like were committed by the Nazis in Germany when they decided that a group of people needed to die in a building, be it a school or any other building, they went inside and had them do what? Line up against the wall, be compliant, and be quiet until they were shot. If this guy had gone to another classroom, found a locked door, and simply shot the lock open the way he did the lock that he originally breached to get into the school in the first place, opened the door and walked in and saw all of the children gathered up into a small area, what more could a murderous person ask for? Compliant in one spot. So what should they have done? It all depends on the situation. It all depends on the children. It all depends on the threat. It all depends. But here, where most of these kids are on the first floor, there's a thing called a window. Get out. Run away. Get away from the threat. For God's sakes, that is the only thing you can do. Let me put this in another frame of reference if the fact that people have been executed by being lined up in a small area against the wall and told to be silent and compliant didn't do it for you. If you were a teacher and you had practiced over and over and over again fire drills and fire alarm went off and you were going to line the children up and get them out of the school the way that you had been taught to and no one had ever said anything to you about a window and you went to do that and you opened the door and the hallway was engulfed with flames. There is no way there is no way you're taking them out the way you're supposed to. Would you shut the door, lock it, draw the shades, turn off the light, and have the children stand in a corner and wait for the firemen to come? As tragic as these events are, the majority of children, thankfully, in every event we've ever had like this, have survived. It's always been a minority of the total that have been killed. So which is more likely to kill you in this scenario, a raging fire or a madman or two with a gun? And the answer is a fire. Yet we know intrinsically when there's a fire that we need to remove ourselves from the threat. I heard about another teacher. I'm not putting the teachers down. The teachers did what they were told to do, for God's sakes. But they were in the gym. They, closed the, they shut the lights off and they put them all up against the wall. And they said it over and over and it made my brain want to come out of my eyes. It kept them safe. Being quiet, hunkering down in a place with no cover, no th nothing that will stop a bullet, something that just hides you while a madman's walking around does not keep you safe. We need to have evacuation plans, not shelter-in-place plans for our children if a situation like this occurs. Getting out is the safest course. It only takes sense. And why I need to be the one saying this instead of your elected officials and your law enforcement officials is absolutely, absolutely beyond me. I can only speak for myself. My son is now of an age where he's not in school anymore. And I'm just grateful nothing like this ever happened. But if he was there today, I would tell him, son, if this happens, I don't care what they tell you. If you can get out, get out and run away. That's what I would tell my children. It's up to you, you know, what, what you'll tell yours. 
There's a couple things, though. That's one. We need to be teaching people that if there's an active shooter scenario in a confined area and you can get out, get out. If there's no way out, we need to teach people as young as is feasible, and in this case it's probably not, but at least the staff, how to engage the threat properly. That should be a last recourse because you are unarmed in these situations. At least most people are. And you're probably not going to win. But if you have no other choice, we need to be honest about the fact that you could be in a situation where there is no other choice and there are smarter ways to try to take down an armed attacker than walking down a hallway. That's the next one. And here's the most important one we need to teach and we need to drill into the minds of not just school children, but Americans everywhere. Because this could happen in a shopping mall. This could happen at a train station. You know, as much security as they have at an airport, this could happen to us on the outside of security. And anywhere there's a large group of people, something like this could happen. Sick, twisted people pick places like schools because they know no one's armed there. They know they have free run of the place, and they know they're in a compliant area where people are herded into places. The reason turning the lights off doesn't work in a classroom, folks, everybody in America is aware of the fact that our schools are overcrowded, and that if school's in session, there's probably a classroom full of students in every single room in the school. You're not going to fool them with that. But this can happen anywhere. So the last piece to this is we need to teach people to think this way. If you end up in that scenario, the natural thing to think is, oh my God, I'm going to die. Or, oh my God, my children are going to die. Or, oh my God, my friends are going to die. Or, oh my God, all of these people are going to die. And that leads to a point where you don't think, and whatever you've been told, whether it makes sense or not, you just do it or you freeze. That's how you get killed. That's how people die in these situations. We need to train people that the first thing you think is, I'm going to survive. I'm going to make it. I'm going to get out of this, and I'm going to try to take some people with me when I do. I'm going to try to get other people out of this, because it will turn the mind on. You'll ask the question that's most important next. Even little children can be taught this. You certainly have to be careful about how. But if you say that to yourself immediately, the next thing you start saying is how. What do I do? What are my tools? What are my resources? How do I get out of here? If there's no way out, how do I, how do I protect myself? How do I defend myself? How do I defend others? That's the truth. And there's nothing we can do to make sure it never happens again. And unlike a lot of things that happen, there's no grandstanding for your politicians to stand up and talk about bringing somebody to justice because the coward that did it is dead because he took his own life. And I said those people got lucky. Let me tell you exactly how so you understand what you're dealing with here. That young man, twisted, in pain, whatever hate or rage, or pain did this to him, I can't know, you can't know, and will probably never understand it, took his mother's life, went to that school, he wanted to kill himself from the beginning, that was always the plan, and he killed enough to sate his bloodlust enough, and back himself into a corner enough, because he was too much of a coward to just blow his own brains out, he got to a point where he was ready to do it, and he did. The police didn't save anybody. He didn't kill himself because he knew the cops were out there. 
The principal didn't save anybody. He didn't stop killing because she told him to. Killed plenty of people after he killed her, from what we understand of the facts on the ground at this point. He killed two classrooms of little children, and then looked at it and said, now I'm ready. And if he would have continued forward with his plan, and needed more, he would have killed more people, putting putting these children in a corner and telling them to be quiet, wouldn't have saved a single life. It really wouldn't have. I'm sorry if anything I've said upsets anybody, but it's the truth. And parents, you need to be asking your schools what the plan is, and if the plan does not include evacuation, you need to be asking the question of why. Please share this with other people that you know. And if you hear anything that I've said today taken out of context, all I ask is you refer them back to this original piece and let the person hear for themselves everything that I've had to say. Because I'm absolutely, positively sure that somebody somewhere will take one piece of this and put it together with another piece of this and say I said something or meant something I didn't. All I want is America to be able to protect itself and our children. And we can't protect them if we put them in a corner and tell them to be compliant when somebody means to kill them. Okay, at this point I'm going to go off into something completely different, pretty much because I have to for my own mental health, because the anguish that something like this makes us feel is, is unbelievable. So I'm going to answer a question from a listener who asked a pretty simple question. Um, question, why is physical fitness not promoted more heavily in the prepper community? I love your podcast. I just recently discovered a few months ago. Looking at a lot of prepper blogs, video blogs, and shows like Doomsday Preppers, it seems many, probably 7 and 10, are overweight and out of shape. With these people who may be preparing for uh, excessive rule of law or without rule of law, total economic collapse, Mayan doomsday or aliens coming back to probe us, how do they think they're going to survive if they're all fat and who gets winded while walking to the fridge and back? No amount of guns can stop a heart attack, thanks in advance. Um, the first thing you have to do is you have to realize that sane, rational preppers don't go on doomsday preppers. So the first thing you have to do is not evaluate the prepping community based on crap that National Geographic puts on TV. Um, as far as people on YouTube or whatever, you know, people are who they are. As far as why it's not promoted more, I can tell you why I don't talk about it more. It has nothing to do with my concern that somebody might get upset because I say that you need to be in shape or that I don't think it's important. So because I'm talking to people at all stations and all walks of life. And I don't want to come off saying, look, you got to be in great shape. you got to be able to hike a mountain. you got to be like a special forces soldier, or at least in really tip-top shape, or you're not going to survive. And then I've got people listening to me that are 75 years old and they're just only going to be in as good a shape as a 75-year-old person can be. Those people can prep too. So to me, physical fitness is something that's extremely important, but I also think that a lot of people that, you know, they feel like they're in shape, look at other people and a lot of times misjudge them because they don't look like they do. Um, you know, I was way overweight for a while. And it was a lot to do with stress and work and the environment that I was in and just being miserable. And uh, I lost about 80 pounds. And today I'm about 205. And uh, depending on how I'm standing, I either do or do not have a gut. Uh, but I'm a big guy. 
right? I mean, I, I'm a broad-shouldered guy. If I put on a, uh, a most extra-large jackets, it, my shoulders are restrained in it, and I have to go to a large, like a like a like a two XL jacket. Even if the arms and the bottom fits me like a uh, you know like a smock. To deal with the fact that I have very wide, very large shoulders that have nothing to do with my weight, it's just my frame. And I'm a again, I'm a big guy. I am not an athlete. I am not trying to make the cover of GQ magazine. I joke at myself sometimes and say I have a face uh, and a voice made for radio. That's why I don't do a lot of video work. But the fundamental reality is, is I'm in pretty dadgone good shape. I'm out of my garden working all the time. I walk my dog, you know, several miles up our mountain. Um, I can hike. I can bike. I can do all of these things. But I don't look like the guy that hits the gym every day. The little, you know, guy that I consider, for a matter of fact, to be too skinny. So I think that we also have to be careful who we're saying's not in shape, because you have no idea if you're talking to a guy that goes elk and mule deer hunting every year and might walk you into the ground in spite of the fact that you get on a treadmill all the time. So I think we have to balance it with that as well. But there is no doubt, and it's not that when you look at the prepping community, that there's a large number of people in the prepper community that are obese. That's not what the problem is. What you're seeing is a fundamental reality that people that mock what we do don't want to admit. You go, how does that work? We are a cross-section of America. Preppers are not people that are all military. Preppers are not people that are all, you know, uh, professional. People, preppers are not people that are all blue-collar. Preppers are a broad cross-section of America. And if you actually look at preppers as a whole, you'll find that just about the same percentage of them are overweight as Americans are overweight, just as you would see with any random cross-section of America. That's the truth. Do we need to talk about it? Probably more than we do. Um, I talk about it, I think, the most when I talk about a paleo lifestyle. I believe that most Americans are fat not because of how much they eat, but because of what they eat, and that in many cases drives how much they eat. I believe a high-carbohydrate diet that we've been convinced is good for us is making us an obese type 2 diabetes nation. Um, and I think that there's, a, you know, the easiest way out of that is to change your eating habits and to eat more meat and fat, which is exactly what medical science tells you not to do. And I think if you start to reshape your body diet-wise, then fitness becomes a fundamental that just occurs. You're going to want to take a walk. You're going to want to you know, dig a ditch. You're going to want to do whatever it is you do. Most people want to do something that's physically engaging. And just because the guy you're looking at doesn't get on a bicycle every day and pretend to be a gerbil in a wheel, doesn't mean that he's not in, in pretty dadgone good shape. You know, the question is, can you walk up a hill without where, you know, if you're doing that, you got a problem, right? So um, I think that the, the, the tendency here. And a lot of people's mind is to look at the people that are clearly obese in the prepper movement and go, look at how many preppers are fat. The, tr the truth is, it's look at how many Americans are fat. That's the real problem. So that can be taken at a much higher level than just uh, the prepper community. That's an American problem. That's a modern first world problem, obesity. Uh, and lack of fitness and lack of activity. Hopefully, a lot of the people that come to the prepper community will eventually 
take on and start working toward that. But here's the reality as I see it. It's not for me to tell you how to live. I give you information, you do with it as you choose. But I will tell you this, if you have trouble just getting up out of a chair, um, if you have trouble getting out of your car because of your weight, if you're in that type of situation, if, if you are uncomfortable in a movie seat because it is too tight on your hips or something like that, you probably need to address the situation. And doing so, even if me saying you need to uh, upset you, doing so may very well save your life. Because everybody's focused on a gunman this weekend. But heart disease kills a lot more people than guns every year. And many other diseases that can be directly attributed to obesity also kill far more people than guns. So it's a good point. Thank you for making it. All right, this next one falls under the uh, the heading of more bad news uh, economically and for you uh, in relation to your government. But I'm going to tell you, as I always do, the truth about um, this really isn't yellow journalism, but it starts to lend that lend itself that way. The title causes it to be perceived that way, and then people take it and blog about it and talk in forums about it, and they miss the actual problem. Because the actual problem is somewhat more insidious than what's being in, inferred. And, and the reason it's more insidious, it's a hell of a lot more probable. The article is entitled, Now Obama Wants Your 401k. And dozens of you sent me this and said, see, see, you were right, Jack. I am right. But this is not about Obama. This is not about your 401k per se, at least not now and not in the, um, the, 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 let's call it the recent future, right? The, what's coming soon. This is, this is a much more insidious plan and one with a much bigger possibility to get done. So let me read it to you. And, and, the, and the article really reveals this. If you'll read it instead of just read the headline and skim it, let me read parts of it to you. Two years ago, as WND reported, the Obama administration was proceeding with a novel way to finance trillion dollar budget deficits by forcing IRA and 401k holders to buy treasury bonds by mandating the placement of government-structured annuities into their retirement accounts. Remarkably, those financial professionals specializing in private retirement savings and the U.S. citizens investing in private retirement plans now face the possibility that the Obama administration and its allies on the political left will impose rules and regulations that effectively abolish the private retirement and savings investment markets. Recent evidence suggests the government officials continue to eye the multi-trillion dollar private retirement savings market, including IRAs and 401k plans, eyeing the opportunity to redistribute private retirement savings to less affluent Americans to force the retirement savings out of the private market into the government-controlled programs investing in government-issued debt. There's the danger. There, but Well, that sounds like to the average person is they're going to seize your retirement account. It's not what they're going to do. And it's not what they've been doing. This has already been happening. We've talked about it. I got enough feedback from you guys to find out that it was true. What's been done? Over and over and over, already in the retirement plans of many Americans, is anything equivalent to a cash option fund has been eliminated, and your so-called safe fund has been replaced with funds that are basically U.S. government debt. It's already been done. Now, 
What this might lead to is eventually stating that all private retirement accounts should have at least 10% or 20% of their money held in U.S. government bonds because that will mean that at least some portions, quote-unquote, safe. But that's not where we're at right now. Let me read a little more for the article. Let me tell you what's really going on here. An investment company institute study published this month found that U.S. retirement assets totaled $18.5 trillion at the end of the second quarter 2012, which was $3.5 trillion in IRAs and $5.1 trillion in 401k plans. Since 2010, the U.S. Treasury Department and the Department of Labor have been holding combined hearings on various plans designed to introduce government-mandated retirement plans and investment options, including government annuities invested privately in the U.S. Treasury debt into the private retirement savings market. This hearing was set up to explore why Americans are not saving as much for their retirement as they could, explained National Seniors Council National Director Robert Crone, describing a recent Treasury labor hearing held in the Labor Department's main auditorium. Quote, however, it is clear this is just the first step toward a government takeover. It feels like the beginning of a debate over health care, and we all know how that ended up. Here's the scam. This is the part that's in the middle of the article. This is what the real story is. This is what you need to get your head around. With the issuance of the White House 256-page budget proposal for the fiscal year 2013, the Obama administration endorsed automatic IRAs. A plan endorsed, introduced into Congress in 2010 by Senators John Kerry, Democrat Massachusetts, and Jeff Bingham, Democrat New Mexico, in which private companies would be automatically rolled into government-mandated IRAs, forcing those businesses to contribute on behalf of their employees a, quote, default amount, end quote, equal to 3% of an employee's pay unless an employee specifically opts out of the plan. I'm going to leave the article there because that's all I need to tell you what's really going on here. That's the goal. And this is something you could get done with, quote, unquote, bipartisan support by using the right Republicans to do that. Because here's what you're saying. All we're saying is that everybody should get a 401k plan. That's all we're saying. We don't want to control it. We don't want to take it over. We're saying that if you employ, and they'll probably say, you know, more than five employees or something like that, they probably will not do this to the guy with one employee because they know it can't work, right? So they'll say, if I say employers, you know, who any employer large enough to participate in a 401k plan, you're going to, whether you like it or not. And then here's what you're going to do. Every employee, you will put away 3% of their, their gross earnings, into this retirement account. If they don't want one, they can they can personally opt out. Let me ask you a question. Why would an employee opt out of that? They don't they, they don't get the 3% if they opt out. It's not like they you're required to take 3% of the employee's pay out of their pay and put it in there. That would be one thing because it would be the employee's money and the employee would give a damn and decide I either want that to happen or I don't. It would be an automatic enrollment taking money from the employee's earnings for the employee's own investment purposes that the employee has a right to opt out of. That in of itself, I wouldn't have a huge problem with. All you're doing is in a roundabout way raising the minimum wage by 3%. That's what you're doing. You're saying to employers, if you employ this person for uh, $10 an hour, effectively now you're going to be employing them for $10.30 an hour And for every hour that they work, you'll put that 30 cents into this program. 
Which is not going to, you know, the, 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 the big business Republicans will tell you, this is going to bankrupt every small business in America. No, it won't. No, it won't. Come on. If you can't afford an extra 30 cents an hour on your $10 an hour employees, you're broke anyway. So it won't bankrupt everybody. It will have a trickle-down effect of raising prices like every tax does, and this would effectively be a tax. But here's the secret. All of the people that would fall into this category are generally your unskilled labor force that don't think about retirement, that don't think about savings, they don't think about anything except trying to survive until next week, until I get paid again. Got that? This 3% doesn't affect their paycheck. They're not even most of them going to be aware of it. So the plans will be set up automatically. That means there, there, there just has to be a place for the money to go. Right? You can't just hold the money. It's got to go into something. And since it's a government-mandated plan and we want to make sure this money's safe, we'll mandate that it goes into, ding, 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 that's right, U.S. Treasury bonds. That's right. The safe investment that you can depend on is the value of your dollar is eroded every time one of them's issued. That's what it'll be. So you take this collective elite, this is a massive amount of money, and you pump it into U.S. debt instruments, and this allows the United States of America to turn the debt over a few more times before it comes crashing to the ground. So this is not a direct takeover of 401k plans. This is the implementation of new 401k plans and a mandate that they go into U.S. government debt. What does that sound like? That would be Social Security. This is basically Social Security, except you have more of an understanding of what's happening to your money that you're supposedly having put away for you. See, this is what people don't get. As long as somebody loans this government money, as far as they're concerned, that's as good as tax income. They don't care about the debt, especially if we, as they tell you over and over again, well, we just owe the money to ourselves, as though that makes it better. So just like you have Social Security automatically taken out of your check, And just like your employer has to match it, which many Americans do not know, whatever if you see $50 come out for Social Security, do you know how much went in your Social Security account supposedly that week? $100. $100. Your employer has to match that money. And all they're saying is, now, not only do you have to match the Social Security, you have to put this money away for them too. But don't worry, it's in a 401k plan under your employee's control. Except that these are employees that aren't going to take an active interest in their retirement, and the money will default to U.S. debt instruments. And the United States debt will grow exponentially because this massive amount of money will come into collectively buying U.S. debt instruments, which will artificially push the interest rate on U.S. debt. Well, it can't really be pushed much further down than it is already, can it? But it will be held there, lower. And many employers will simply just let that thing be set up and just say it's an extra 30 cents an hour, I gotta pay my $10 an hour employees and that's it. And there won't be many options in that plan to do anything but hold U.S. government debt. That's the real plan. It's not a direct takeover. That is too obvious. It's an indirect takeover. And then eventually they're gonna say, well look how well this works and they're going to try to sucker all the people with independent IRAs and 401ks into this program. They'll put some goodies in it. 
Right? Because you can buy lots of goodies when all the money that goes into the plan helps you fund the goodies today and put it off tomorrow what you can't pay, right? So they'll put some things in there till employees start going, we, you know what? We want one of those. Like those, those people. Why do only the, this is where this is going. Be aware. Don't let it happen to you. And protect your private retirement accounts. A direct frontal assault is not likely. What they may do at some point is take the individual private accounts grandfather them and say no more contributions to accounts like these. And they will let those follow the old rules because if they try to do anything else, there'll be people dragging congressmen out of behind from desks at the Capitol. They, they, they can't do it. But then they make this new program look so good that they'll start giving you this opportunity to move your money into it. And all the new additional monies that get invested are going to have to go into this new vehicle. That's what's coming, folks. Remember, you heard it here first. All right, so here's an interesting question. Uh, it says, uh, can you produce enough electricity to go off-grid with a 24-inch wind turbine and a 12-inch diameter water turbine? This was all viewed on a recent episode of Building Alaska, episode number five, which is a DIY KBT cable TV show. I really like that show, by the way. Uh, in episode five, Bob May, the owner of a fishing lodge, installed a 24-inch diameter wind turbine from and uh, from a stream on the property. Installed a water turbine. The water turbine was about the size of an alternator found on older cars. The water flow was 66 gallons per minute from a two-inch diameter pipe. This is all the information supplied, but the wind turbine and water turbine he claimed to generate enough power for an entire lodge, and to no longer require a gasoline generator. Thanks. Um, I'll tell you what. It's this is one of those situations. Can you? You can do anything. People lived without electricity completely off grid because that's all there was a few hundred years ago, and they did, they did pretty good, right? It's a matter of how much convenience do you want. Now let's look at what's going on here. The hydro. Hydro is a continuous generation technology. That means especially if we're adding batteries to the system. We're generating and storing power 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That is a very efficient means of generating electricity. It is a big way that we generate electricity for everybody on the grid. And it has the ability to be throttled up and down. If we have a situation where we have a dam running hydroelectricity and we need more power, we're not running full out, we can open up more turbines or open up the pressure. If we are generating more power than we need, we can reduce how much we allow to be generated simply by maybe maybe decoupling some of the the the, uh, the generators simply by the water still coming out because we have a certain flood restriction we need to meet or something like that. But we can just simply stop generating power, so we can turn it on and turn it off at will. And if it just stays on like a small system like this, it's always on. So you can do a lot with that. Wind, not as much. Wind is a good power generation tool, and in a place like Alaska, he probably gets a lot of wind and gets a significant amount of power. But the question would be, well, what do you what do you mean by running the power for all the lodge? You want to run light bulbs in every room? No problem. You ain't running an air conditioner. It's Alaska, so you ain't got that load. And how do most people in Alaska heat with wood, either wood or propane? So you're not running heat. You're not running air conditioning, and you're not probably running electric stoves. You're probably running propane stoves in an off-grid Alaska situation, or you're using wood to cook with. So now all you got to do is run lights. 
no problem. And if you even want to run a TV and some cable boxes and sat or satellite boxes, obviously, because you, you're not going to have cable, right? But satellite TV boxes and uh, maybe charge cell phones and stuff like that, you can do that all day long with that kind of a setup. It's when we get into wanting to cook with electricity, wanting to cool with electricity, and wanting to heat with electricity, and wanting to heat water with electricity. It's those four things that are the big energy sinks. When you hear people in the eco-movement talking about, not everybody can have a big screen TV. You know what? We can generate all the electricity we need to run big screen TVs with solar, wind, and hydro. Not even a challenge. You want to set the thermostat at 70 degrees, and folks, in the summertime, that's where mine's at. I'm not saying anything derogatory about it. But if you want to do that, you need greater energy production, period. So can this be done? Yes. But that doesn't mean it can be done everywhere or you'll have everything that you want. If you're running hydroelectrical generation of something about the size of a car alternator, Even if it's double what a car alternator puts out, it's not going to produce enough electricity to run a central air system. It's not going to produce enough air to run central heating. It's just not going to happen. And it certainly ain't going to produce enough electricity to run a hot water heater. It might, in the right scenario, with the right amount of usage and the right planning, produce enough electricity to run on-demand hot water to where you're only heating the water as it's being used. That might actually work. I'm not sure. But there you go on that one. And this is what we have to start getting into our heads about all these off-grid scenarios, all of these things like, well, how much can I do with alternative energy? The answer is there's a limit. The real question is, how much, one, are you willing to do without? And two, how much are you able to provide from other means? Living off-grid in Alaska is easier than living off-grid in Texas, right? Making heat is easy. If you burn something, it gets hot. If you have a decent supply of wood and an efficient wood stove, you can keep a reasonably sized house nice and warm. Very easy. Very, very easy. If you want to do the same thing in Texas when it's 113 degrees out and keep a 1,500-square-foot house cool, with modern construction techniques, it ain't gonna happen. We have to change the way we're actually building the structures. If you want to go to solar, wind, even micro-hydro, and micro-hydro, if you can get it, if you can get a running stream that you can turn this on on your property, It is the best and most reliable source you can have and the most high output source you can have. But even if you want to do that, we've got to change the way we build the structures. You have to design the house to the energy system. See, it's gotten so easy with just plug into the grid and pay the bill that we build the energy system to the house. As soon as you take away on-demand, full-on current... You have, to swap, you have to swap it around. So you have to say, well, how much energy can I create? And then you have to design your dwelling to the energy availability. Let's take another one. So long ago, uh, Jack told you something that you know only crazy fringe lunatic people say, and that is that the overall plan in America was to not eliminate the gas tax, but to move to a mileage tax in addition to it, try to pay all the bills. 
and that as more and more cars became fuel efficient, which is what the government says it wants, you would find out really quick that it's not what the government wants because it raises billions of dollars every year in gasoline taxes at the federal, state, local, and county levels. There's gas tax. Some places don't have a gas tax at that finite level, but many places do. There's even places where they have very specific gas taxes in a certain part of the city to pay for a certain uh, development. It's always the easy thing to tax because you know people are going to buy it no matter what you do to it. Um, and that as you create more and more fuel efficiency, which again is what they say they want, as soon as it starts to hit the bottom line, they'll start looking for other ways to tax you. That's crazy talk. Not so much. Here we go. This is on KOMONews.com, and uh, here we go. Seattle, cars are becoming more and more fuel efficient. And you would think that's a good thing. But Washington State is actually losing money because of it, and as a result, the state is now considering a pay-by-the-mile tax. The state predicts gas tax collected today won't add up to enough cash to pay for future road projects. Drivers of fuel-efficient cars are spending less at the pump, which means they are paying less in gas tax while driving the same amount of miles. So the state is considering a pay-by-the-mile tax to even out the playing field since it stands as it stands now. Drivers of gas guzzlers pay more taxes per mile than drivers of fuel-efficient cars. In the future, as vehicles get more and more efficient, that puts a strain on our ability to maintain and operate our transportation system, said Jeff Doyle of the Washington State Department of Transportation. A state-sponsored study released this week says that a pay-by-the-mile tax make, uh, could make up the shortfall, but the study did not lay out how it would work. Such a tax could be implemented through yearly odometer checks or using a tolling devices that were tested during a study four years ago or through a similar system existing uh, good-to-go pass. The state legislature will be asked to spend millions of dollars on another study to find a recommended method. As Washington State is not alone, 20 states, including Oregon, are considered... You know what that means? Don't think about moving across the border to Oregon, folks. We're going to get you there, too. Are considering similar measures. Quote, there is nothing on the horizon. It's not going to solve our current transportation funding issues, but we need to be prepared for the future, end quote, Noel said. There is already a tax rate being discussed, 1.5 cents a mile. By 2025, the federal government will require new cars to average 54.5 miles to the gallon, and you'll pay more taxes. I added that last part. Let me let me explain this to you guys, how this works. The first thing you do is say it's only one and a half cents a mile, guys. Come on. Come on. It's not that much. You're saving that much with your Prius. And then you could raise it anytime you want to, just like any other tax. And then let me talk to you about the illusion. We just don't know how we're going to do this. We could have odometer checks. You're not checking my odometer. That's none of your business looking inside my car. Oh, okay. We, we won't do that then. See, that's your, that's your bait and switch. Now you feel like you've gained something. This is how, this is how this kind of crap always works. L look, look. Right now in Texas, they have gotten rid of all the toll booths. There's no toll booth. There isn't one. You go on a toll road, you don't have a toll tag, you get a bill in the mail instead. For about twice what you would pay for the toll. The magical, unbelievable way that they do this is they just have this thing called a freaking camera. It takes the pictures of your license plate, and the license plate is registered with your state, whether it's their state or a state outside the state of Texas. And that means they know where your address is, and they send you a bill in the mail. That's how they do that. 
Gee, so how could we tax people by the mile? Do you think we know how long roads are? Do you think we could put in some cameras at every place you get on and off a road? Do you think we would start out with, well, we're only taxing like major state highways and interstates and certain places. That gives them time to get the cameras into all of those locations, right? And then, it, well, you know, this is very non-intrusive. I mean, we're just sending you a bill. But what will happen then is what will start happening is to get your tags so that you can legally be on the road, Right? To do that, they're going to say, well, you have to have a bank account or a credit card attached to your account with the state so that we can bill you, or if you fail to pay your bill in other states, pay it on your behalf. And then they'll come this great joint cooperative agreement between the states that will allow for that to take place. <laughs> And then you know what they're going to do? This is going to be so simple. They're just going to take one of these little things called an RFID tag, And when you get your tags to put in your window every year, they'll just stick it in there. And then wherever they don't have cameras, they'll just have a little sensor. That little sensor will do things like determine where you've been, when you've went there, how long you were there for, and how fast you were going. And don't think for an inst for a minute, don't think they're not going to start taxing you more if you drive faster. Which doesn't really make a lot of sense. Right, But they'll tax you based on the time of day that you drive. They'll say, this is to help improve and reduce congestion, as though the average worker has a choice that he gets off at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. As though the average worker actually wants to be in traffic at 5 o'clock in the afternoon. Then they'll start putting in, instead of HOV lanes, they'll call them express lanes. And that's where they get the express right to charge you more for driving in those lanes. They'll say it's a fast lane that you use by choice, but instead of adding a new lane, they'll just take away an existing lane that was already there and charge you more to drive, and it will actually exasperate the traffic program. And then they'll start saying maybe mileage isn't the way to tax, but maybe it's more accurately how long you're on the road, because every minute that you're on that road, <laughs> you see how this goes? And eventually everything you've done is known. Every place that you've ever been is known. It's housed in a data center, and where would they send that data? Maybe Utah to the NSA data center that's larger than the Capitol building that they're building there right now? This is where we're headed. And it's not that oh, they're doing this so that they can keep No, it's just this, it's this simple. If you create a way to collect this data, they'll decide that they need it. And then they'll house it somewhere. And it'll start being used for things that are clearly unconstitutional, and they'll just pass laws or give themselves executive privilege to do it anyway. And they'll say it's all in your best interest for safety, when the real thing is it's all to suck more money out of your pocket into the coffers of government. This is going on right now. It's happening. I told you it was coming years ago, and now here it is. Just think about that and realize... This is coming to your state, and I can hear some people right now. They're not going to do that to me. I will not have that. You're not going to not have it. It's going to happen. They're going to do this unless you fight it at the state level. And here's what your state's going to tell you. We've got to pay for roads and bridges and stuff anyway. And here's your answer. You know all this other crap you're doing you don't need to be doing? How about you stop doing that first, take that money, and use it for roads and bridges and stuff, which is the things you should be doing that actually do serve the public interest, And if you take all of that crap we don't need and stop doing it and focus on the things that you knew to be doing, like infrastructure, like schools, like public places, if that's where you put 100% of our hard-earned and given-to-you tax dollars and there's not enough money then, then we can have a conversation about do we need to do something else. 
But until you do that, until you stop pissing our money away, you don't get any more. But I don't think America's going to have that conversation with their elected officials because we're going to be too busy worried about things like, you know, the complete faltering and destruction of the United States economy if they keep doing things this way. All right, let's take one more. Here's kind of a completely different subject to get us into a different line of thought so we don't get too deep into one thing here today. Um, this is from Dean. Dean says, I have some friends who process their own deer. When I mentioned that I may let a local butcher process mine, they had a conniption saying, you'll never know if you get your own deer back. I've used this butcher in the past for beef, and he has a good reputation. Is there any realistic validity to their concern of deer swapping? Um Maybe, but it's very, very individual. You, if you have a good butcher who does a good job that values his clients, you're not going to have that problem. Um, I've heard from many people that say, my butcher stole deer meat from me. I know there's no way that's all the meat that I got. And you talk to them about the size of the deer and how much meat they got, and you go, well, no, that's about right. Because a lot of people have a huge misconception about how much meat comes off one deer. It ain't as much as a lot of people seem to think. Uh, it's not something I would worry about with a guy you know on a first-name basis that you've been doing business with. Some states that have really high populations of hunters, they have kind of almost a commercial, uh, you know, drop it off, pick it up the next day. It's all, I don't know, it's... Uh, It's almost like a mass-produced thing. Is it possible? Yeah. But here's the thing. There's not a whole lot of advantage for a butcher to do that. There's not a lot to be gained. It, when you go to process a deer, you know, there's just certain steps you do to make certain cuts of meat and put it away. And generally speaking, your butcher will ask you, do you want it boned? Do you, do you boned out? Do you want it boned in? How much, you know, what do you want me to turn into hamburger? Do you want me to mix anything with it? So they take kind of a custom order from you. So it's, it's just not something I would worry about. Uh, that said, I do butcher my own deer, uh, but I do that because I believe that it's better that I do it. Um, it, it, it doesn't cost me additional money. It is a skill that I've, you know, taught myself and I value and I want to continue to get better at. I want to be able to teach it to other people if they want to learn from me. And uh, it just makes sense. Now, it's not that I've never used to butcher. There's been times where I've gone on a hunt, I've gotten a deer or two or more, and uh, I had to go right back to work. And generally in those situations, I'm not the guy pulling up with a couple deer in the back of the truck with a, uh, you know, a, a couple bags of ice shoved inside them because it's so daggone warm down here. I'm the guy showing up with a couple big coolers and they've been quartered. Uh, because it's just easier for me to transport them that way. So I'm almost always doing my own field dressing, my own skinning, my own quartering, and then I'll bring the deer quartered up to them. I've never had a problem with it, and one time I had to do that, um, one of the deer that I brought in was a psycho deer, uh, and that's kind of, it looks like a little elk, and we have a lot of them in South Texas. And You know, this is, an, this is a guy up in, in Arlington, Texas. This is, you know, hundreds of miles away from where I shot these deer. And you don't have a lot of hunters bringing in psycho deer. And you take psycho deer meat and you put it next to whitetail deer meat and you can tell the difference. And I had meat that was labeled from, because I said I'd like, you know, this process this way. And so it was labeled severally and all. And when I opened it up, you could tell it was exactly what it was supposed to be. Um, it's not something that I would lose a lot of sleep over. 
it is something that to, to make yourself have peace with you, you might want to learn how to do it. So you start figuring out what the expected yield from deer are. And then there's one thing that I've never sent to a butcher ever. When you gut your deer and you look along its back spine, and usually it's a good idea to let the deer hang for a while and let the meat firm up before you do this, right along, right below where the rib cage ends and then going down and descending along the spine in those, those chops that are between the rump and where the, the rib cage starts are two Uh, round pieces of meat, two round muscles. If you're looking at a cow, that is your filet mignon. In a deer, we just call it the tenderloin. A lot of people call the tenderloin the whole loin, the thing that the chop loin that runs along the backbone on the top all the way down to where it hits the rump and becomes rump roast. That's not. That's your chops, right? Um, it's the underside. It's a much shorter muscle. That's the tenderloin. I never send that Even if I have to, due to time constraints to a butcher, they're too easy to remove. Um, and I, I generally either grill them or I just fry them whole. They're not very big on a deer uh, with, like, butter, garlic, and onion. And uh, that is something that I just won't risk either getting put into some other cut or something like that. It takes five minutes to take it out, and I'd recommend you do that uh, just because it's the best piece of meat on the deer. Uh, let's see if I can find one more to wrap up today. So here's an interesting one, a little story for us here from uh, Jamie. Jamie says, hey, Jack, I revisited Glenn, Glenn Tate's first interview the other day, and it got me wanting to go to Cash and Carry and pick up some food. While I was there, I witnessed a couple shopping, and I overheard their conversation. The husband was wanting to buy a case of nacho cheese and was telling his wife how great it would be to always have chips and cheese on hand when she replied, I don't care because I won't be eating it. The husband replied, you'll eat it if you're starving, which piqued my interest, to say the least. He finally came out with it and stated, we're not grocery shopping, we're doomsday prepping, and if you are hungry, you'll eat whatever I buy. Uh, guys, this is, this is not the way to do things if you're trying to flip a spouse. Okay, when I came around the corner, I asked if I could offer my opinion and showed them the powdered cheese. I explained to them that since we live in an earthquake zone, it's possibly better to buy powder in pouches instead of goo in glass, and this stuff could be used in other ways than just eating chips, mac and cheese, etc. The hu husband replied with a quick thank you and then moved on while the wife stayed behind asking why I thought that way. I proceeded to explain to her the extremist view portrayed in the show and told her about this guy on the internet named Jack Spirico who did the Survival Podcast. I told her quickly about your disaster probability and how this could be done with a level head. I also explained eat what you store and store what you eat along with copy canning and rotation. Then she went to ask what should they buy. She stopped to say, duh, probably what we eat, huh? The husband was off loading up bags of tortilla chips, and I pointed out that masa would store better and wouldn't go stale like trips, but they'd have to learn to make their own if that's what they wanted. She was far more receptive than her husband and wrote down your name and website before I left. Hopefully you've got a couple new listeners to the show. Thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. This is a great story, not because the community here of TSP looks good in it, uh, and maybe we picked up some new listeners, and hey, it would be really cool if they're listening today and they heard this and realized that that really happened out there. But what's actually cool is it actually shows with this husband and wife two different mindsets. 
and the one that we want to get ourselves into. And nothing against the husband, especially, sir, if you're listening. But what happens is a lot of times, sooner or later, people come to the conclusion, holy crap, what I've been told is a lie. We're not as safe as they say, and everything could go really wrong really fast, and I gotta do something now! And then you don't think. You buy giant jars of cheese, and you say to your wife, I don't care what you think, you'll eat whatever I buy. Not good. Not good. Fortunately, in this relationship, the wife was at least open. If she was closed, that comment alone would have resulted in true disaster in the home. Some of the biggest disasters in America today occur inside the walls of our home as we destroy our family relationships and our trust in each other. I don't mean to pick on you, but that statement heads you in that direction. You gotta stop. You gotta pull yourself in. But to be fair, here's why. It's a guy that's scared, that wants to protect his family, and damn well knows what he said is actually true. If they ended up in a situation where that was their only choice, everybody in that home would be grateful to not be starving. Just because it's true doesn't make it a good idea to say it in every situation. That's not a good one. But the, the other spouse is receptive to this, right? Or else they wouldn't have been there together. And what you need to do is get more like that, that lady in this scenario than the guy and start thinking about how will I make this comfortable? And if you read 299 Days, you'll see that a lot of the stuff that Glenn was buying in the early prepping period was stuff he knew that his family would eat. It might not have been the best food for them nutritionally, but it was the pancake mix that his son would eat a pancake from every single day. Well, that makes sense. And everybody else, pancakes taste good. They're not good for your figure. You know, we talked about fitness earlier, and if you don't want to be a big old giant triple XL with your gut pushing shirt out, right, and bye-bye elbows. I know people know what bye-bye arms are. Bye-bye arms, you know what that is, when you wave and your arm waves at the same time. Bye-bye elbows are when you, you look at the tip of your elbow, the point like where you put an elbow pad on so you don't skin your elbow when you're riding a bike, right? That tip of your elbow, if you can take the tip of your finger and stick it inside there and it'll disappear, that's a bye-bye elbow. It makes the tip of your finger go bye-bye, right? You eat enough pancakes long enough, you might end up with bye, hell with bye-bye arms, bye-bye elbows. But in a, a breakdown, a long-term scenario... You can eat all the pancakes you want because you're going to be so busy doing things to keep yourself alive that you're talking about fuel versus output in those situations. And you'll end up in a point, you know, if it gets bad enough where you're rationing food anyway. So we don't have to go out and have a health store for our long-term stores. But we do need to think about things people will actually eat, and especially in short-term scenarios, which are far more likely things that are comforting. Things that are comforting. Um, one of the biggest things that can happen, that really can happen, and might very well happen, you know, someday for everybody here, and that would be a pandemic, a true pandemic, not the nonsense we had with the swine flu a couple of years ago, where every politician and his mother had to come out and tell us to sneeze in our sleeve and wash our hands. I'm talking about a real legitimate. Um, high death rate, high contagion rate, uh, illness, whether it's flu or something else. And I don't mean everybody turns into zombies and dies. I don't mean anything like that. I'm talking about something that has, you know, a 50% contagion rate. In other words, 50% of the people that are exposed to it contract it. It's not that high. Um, and let's say maybe a lethality rate of 10%. 10% of the people that get this thing 
die without medical help. And maybe it's even a 5% lethality rate with medical help. Do you know what that would do to the hospitals? Do you know what that would do to the hospitals? Do you know how many people would die of other things because of the lack of medical care in that scenario, which is not what you get these like um, sci-fi movies and stuff. It's, it's not anywhere approaching what those people try to portray. It's a lot more likely. Now, if you are the government and you're not trying to do anything mean to anybody, you're just trying to keep people alive, what is the only thing you can do? What is the only thing you can do to stop the spread of an illness like that? I'll tell you what it is. It's quarantine. It's martial law. It's everybody stay in your homes. Anybody who comes out of your home is getting arrested. You don't get to leave. And the people are like, oh, I'll leave anyway. You're going to kill your family in that scenario. Because if you do manage to get out and come back, and you may very well come back infected when nobody was. There's a reason they would take that approach. It's the only thing that's ever worked in that scenario. So, let's say it ain't even as bad as I say it is. Let's say it's a one-week quarantine to get a cap on things, and then they start to figure it out, and they go, okay, people can sort of go back to normal and, and all. Just a week. Don't you think it would be a good idea to have things in your home that would keep your scared, upset family somewhat comfortable during that period of time? And you know what? It, you'll eat it if I buy it is, is, is not the way to make that happen. Prepping should be a family endeavor. And kids can be told different things at different ages. You know, I, I started out today talking about what went on in Connecticut. And one of the things I do agree with all the talking heads on, they're like, if you have six-year-old, five-year-old kids and they're not aware that this happened, let it be. Don't, don't bring this to them yet. They're not ready to process this. Don't, you know, don't, there's certain things you do and don't talk to a kid about. So there's certain things with prepping you do and don't talk to your children about. But when it comes to the fact that, hey, look, you know, if anything ever goes wrong, we need to look after each other, that's no different than saying, hey, if there's a fire, everybody meets here. If there's a fire in the stairwell, this is how you get out the window, right? If there's a stranger that wants to talk to you and lure them over to your car, you don't, it's the same thing. There's danger, and there's a certain level of age where you can understand, compute the danger, and take certain actions to prevent it. Prepping's the same way. If prepping is done at the family level, it can be a lot of fun. And it can make your life better even if nothing goes wrong. That's what this show's all about. There's things we can't prevent. I've had people ask me, well, if you're a survivalist, what would you do if we got hit by a meteor the size of the state of Florida? Well, if I knew it was coming, I'd tell everybody I love that I love them. Uh, I'd probably go get the best beer I could, spend my last hours with my wife and sit down under a tree and contemplate the beauty of the universe, pour myself a nice glass of Chimay and enjoy that, do anything else I could to enjoy the time that I had left, because if that happens, we're dead. If that happens, we're dead. That's not about being a survivalist. That means you're going to survive anything and everything could happen. I could get off this microphone. I hope it doesn't ever happen. I say it so often, maybe, you know, <laughs> I'm not forecasting my own future. But I could be driving home to see my wife right now. And one of them daggone gravel trucks could hit me, and I'm done. There's, you can't survive everything. That's not the point. The point is to give yourself the best chance, not just to survive, but to thrive in a rapidly changing, tumultuous environment. There are things coming that there's nothing we can do to prevent them. They're coming, folks. 
The economy is going off the rails. It's going to happen. What will it look like? How bad will it get? I don't know. I can tell you some of the things I think they'll do to try to fix it and how it'll make it worse. But in the end, we're all in this together. But the way you work at this as a family is you care about each other's needs and concerns and fears. That's how you get through it. Because your family, that's what you got, man. That's the one thing you know you have. Unless you do something to ruin it. It happens. It's happened in my own family. There's family members that I just will not allow myself to be taken in by ever again. I won't do it. But if you're my family, if you're my blood, and you haven't broken that, I'm always there for you. Always. And that's how families should be. And I've seen enough broken families to know that you've got to be careful when you think you're doing the right thing, guys. you got to be careful. you got to think. you got to do it in a way that makes the other side understand they're doing this for me. And you'll do what I say doesn't get that done. Even if you're right. Even if you're 100% right, it still doesn't work. I think one of the most valuable things you can get from Glenn Tate's 299-day series, especially the first two books, is that you can be right and you still have to be careful about how you communicate. And some spouses won't be ready. And this guy's lucky. At least his wife's there at the store with him buying stuff. Some spouses will not be open to this at all. Some spouses, when you start to say, hey, there's things that can go wrong, will put their hands over the ears and scream, shut up, shut up, shut up, I can't listen to this. Do you know who those are? Those are the ones that know you're right but aren't ready to accept it yet. And if you keep beating on that, it ain't going to work. Families need to be looking after each other. And that might mean, you know what, you're not on board with this. There's certain things I'm going to do anyway, but I, do, I, I would love your input. I would love your input, and I will try to accommodate your input if I can. I'll hear you. I'll do anything with you except nothing. It's a much better way to phrase, you'll do whatever I say, right? Because that's just not going to work. And you know what? Men, we should be smart enough to know women are just not going to do what we tell them to. I don't know where we got the idea that that would happen. There's certain movies out there that I think are stupid woman chick flick movies that I don't ever want to see ever. And some of them, because I'm a good husband, I've seen. Uh, and usually... They'll have one or two little wisdom things in them that are actually true and interesting and, and impactful. And then the rest of the movie, you just have to keep yourself from using a spoon to gouge your eardrums out to make it go away. One such movie was a film, and this is like the most uh, chick flick movie I've ever you know allowed myself to actually watch from one to the other. And it was my big, fat Greek wedding. I don't remember nothing about that movie. I don't remember who was marrying who or what, or I don't remember anybody's name. I do remember one little scene. There's an old lady talking to a young lady about whatever they want to do at the wedding or something. I don't even know if it was directly related to the wedding. And she basically said, you know, Daddy won't let me do this, or Papa won't do that, you know, he won't agree to this. And she said, he will, I'll take care of it. And uh, the daughter, and I, I'm not getting the words right because I didn't care that much. But the daughter basically says, how? And the old, now this I will get right. I do remember this because I went, wow, that was interesting. And then the movie sucked again. But the, the, the line was, let me tell you something. The man might be the head of the family, but the woman is the neck 
and the neck can turn the head any way that she wants the head to go. All right? There's some truth there, guys. If you want to take care of your family, then you need to do it as a family. And you need to do it at whatever level that family member is capable of. Let me tell you one of the mistakes I made very early on with my wife. This is a true story. We were heading up to Y2K. I had just started to come back around. I really didn't come all the way back around until 9-11. And I won't go into it today, but it wasn't because, oh, my God, look what happened. It was where I was and how far away from my family was and the fact that I couldn't help them when I needed to be there. That, that's the short story there. But around Y2K, I'm like, you know, we should, you know, like my family always did this. We always had a good stockpile of food, at least enough, you know, at the end of winter to make it to spring before the garden came in again, and we should be doing some things. And my wife said, well, maybe we should go get a couple gallons of water. And I did the dumb thing. Well, what do you think the dumb thing was, right? Who's done this, you know, men all out there, raise your hand, or women. Women do this stuff, too, when they're the prepper and the guy isn't. You know what I did. I said, well, that won't do anything. That's not enough. What's two gallons of water going to do for us if if this if these people I'm like I don't even think these people are going to be right I just want to kind of start heading back to toward more preparedness but if these people are right and you turn on the faucet tomorrow and the water don't come on for a long time what the hell is two gallons of water going to do for us that was stupid that was Doctor Phil level stupid right I'm telling you that was dumb and I'll tell you why she took a step and I crapped on it. You know what I should have said? You know what? That's a start. Let's go do that. Well, I know that now. It, that was 13 years ago, right? We all grow as 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 we you know as we mature in our walks as as preppers, as fathers, as husbands. Hopefully, we're all doing that. Um, but I think part of that is passing the information on. So I'm going to tell you something in in these prep in your your family prepping. If the other side gives an inch, take it with and be gracious when you take it. Don't tell them what's wrong with it. Go do it. I think we should at least uh, pick up uh, six extra cans of food this week. Excellent. You pick them out, honey. We'll, we'll, we'll do it to, even better. Don't say just pick what you want. We'll do it together. That's even better. And then bring it home and then put it away and then look at it and say, what do you think now? Not let me tell you, right? What do you think is a much better conversation than let me tell you? What do you think? And you'll probably hear something like, well, that, that feels pretty good. At least we have that now. We like that. Yeah, okay. You might hear, I think we have enough. Don't say no, we don't. Say, okay, well, maybe we have enough of that. And there's some other things I'd like to do if we could next. And then pick something small. Give back. Because here's what happens. If you'll start down the path to preparedness... Every little step you take starts to improve your confidence and it starts to open your awareness. And you start to ask yourself questions and we'll all find the answers in different timelines. Unless the sirens are blowing and something's coming right now and you just have to go, the hell with it, I'm going to act. Let the person come along in their own frame of reference, their own time. 
A little quick reference. Episode 69 of the Survival Podcast was called Getting Your Spouse on Board. I've been asked to do a modern version of it. I feel like I did a mini episode today. Maybe I'll do something like that in the the winter or spring in 2013. Uh, A larger overview of it, what I've learned, and and bring that up to speed. But for now, that's probably one of the best podcasts you guys that are struggling to uh, so-called flip your spouse to prepping uh, can listen to. But hopefully today's been a good episode. Please share... Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes today, the YouTube video, um, about the uh, about the stuff uh, that, that happened in Connecticut. And I know that some of the things I said today may be hard to hear, like the, te- the teachers didn't keep those kids safe, but they did. They did what they were supposed to do. They did the right thing according to the procedure that they were given. But our children deserve a better plan. And that plan will come when parents start to ask school districts and first responders to come up with one. So let's try to get that out there because as much as I want America to live a better life, times get tougher even if they don't, I want our children to grow up and have an opportunity to do so. With that, this has been Jack Spirica today with another episode of the Survival Podcast, hopefully helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. We forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living for